Welcome to the final episode in this current season of Let's Make This More Interesting. And I'm faced today with a challenge that I've never faced before. How do you produce an episode about an Oscar-winning producer? Because my final guest today, for this season anyway, is Nick Reed, who besides being the co-founder of the most successful viral content studio in the US, has been involved in some of the most successful movie franchises in the last 20 years, including the Born Identity, Meet the Parents and Austin Powers movies. In 2014, also won an Oscar for a documentary that he'd produced. He's been named by the Sunday Times as one of the 10 most influential Brits in Hollywood. And now he's sitting here in front of me and I have to work out how to produce this episode. But fortunately, fortunately for me, Nick has a very clear point of view about how, if we really want to be more interesting, we should start this final episode. So Nick, just tell us what that is. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I guess the phrase I use is giving up the gold. Um, giving up the goal basically means when I first meet someone, I have to basically prove I can be a value, because most people are about what can you know what can I get from you, but that's that to me is not the right way to do anything in life. You want to start a new relationship by saying, "Hey, I know everything about you. I'm a fan of you, and I want to bring you value." So when you're storytelling, whether it's a documentary, whether it's a, an online video or a, a meeting. To me, when I make a first impression, I want to make sure I go in and I'm going to give up some gold, which means I'm going to give you something of value that will help you regardless of what else happens in our relationship. So this is the last episode in the current season, and it's longer than the rest because it's stuffed full, not just with nutrition, but also, I hope, with pleasure. The main focus is going to be on what makes something interesting enough, not just to watch, but to share. But we're also going to look at how you get a Hollywood studio interested in using talent that no one has given any work to for three years, how to get Netflix interested in buying your film when no film festival will touch it, and even how to live a longer and happier life from a fascinating centenarian. Because today, we're learning from a master in making something more interesting by giving value. My original objective in this final episode had been to talk to an expert in creating viral content. I'd been wondering if in effect there are different families of interesting, whether interesting enough to want to learn more, for instance, is different in some way from simply interesting enough to keep listening or watching. And whether both of those were different again from interesting enough to remember. Think of the way that Addison the science teacher used dual coding to make his interesting more memorable. And I thought, if TikTok is the home of what the world seems rightly or wrongly to find most interesting, what does interesting enough to share look like? And what can we learn about how to do that? Which brought me to Nick Reed, co-founder of his company Shareability, who besides their success in creating viral video, were also strategic partners with YouTube on creating shared content. And then I found that, like so many of our guests, once you scratch the surface with Nick, it turns out there are all these other things we can learn from him as well. And I should say that a lot of what follows is also about the pleasure of a life well-lived, well-learnt, and well-told. If you have no interest in knowing what it's like to take your Oscar statuette that you've just won into a burger restaurant with Bill Murray in the early hours of a Hollywood morning, or understanding how the first Austin Powers movie actually got made, or what the oldest Auschwitz survivor's advice was on how to live a longer and happier life, then this may not be the episode for you. But if you are up for hearing more about those as we go, then I hope you'll find it a treat. So we're going to start with Nick's life as a young Hollywood agent and what he learned the hard way on how to be more interesting at the one-to-one -one level with one other often skeptical person across the phone or across the desk. And we'll see that Nick's core precept here is that the key question in any upcoming interaction with your customer or your audience is how are you going to offer them value? It's a really simple thought, but note how it changes our approach to how we think about being more interesting. The question through Nick's lens is not about how we keep their attention through being more entertaining in some way, it becomes how we give them very early in the interaction something that is valuable to them that they can actually use. Don't start, in other words, with what matters to us. Start with what matters to them. Then we're going to move on in the conversation from being more interesting at the one-to-one -one level to being more interesting at the one-to-one -one million people level, looking at how he promoted his Oscar-winning documentary before moving up in altitude again 
to discuss being more interesting at the 1 to 10 million people level, looking at what makes viral content interesting enough to share. But let's begin at that moment in Nick's life where he starts out as a young Hollywood agent and is given a handful of people to represent that nobody else is interested in. So let's focus in on you being an agent. Clearly, that's about one-to-one relationships, right? You're quite junior at this point. You're going with very, very senior Hollywood kind of studio heads, and you are learning how to give them value, how to give up the gold. Did you have any kind of experience in being an agent whatsoever when you started? So one of the great things about becoming a young agent at a big agency, and I was at a company called International Creative Management, so we were one of the big three at the time, um, is that when you become an agent, all the senior agents give you three or four of their clients that they've had for a long time that they can't get work for. <laughs> um, so I got stuck in a room with no, no windows, um, and I was given basically every client of the agency who hadn't had a job in a year or two. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, right, so you've been an agent for 20 years and you can't get him a job. And I've been an agent for 24 hours and I have to get him a job. Um, well, as you can imagine, the first week was pretty depressing because everyone who I called up said, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Maybe they didn't say the thank you bit. <laughs> Um, so I learned very, very quickly that what you've got to do in that scenario is why would they want to meet that person? Right? What's in it for them? So then I realized that instead of ask, uh, asking yes or no questions where you have a 90% chance, 99% chance of getting the wrong answer, I thought, what do they want? Well, every producer and every executive wants to find the next great project. They want to find the next Harry Potter. They want to find the next Bourne identity. So... I started spending a lot of time understanding the buyers. So the buyers were either the producers or the studios. And what I mean researching, I mean like, you know, like where, what college they went to, what hobbies they had, because I really had to understand the person because when I had the opportunity to meet them, I wanted to break the ice. And then, of course, you know, were they looking for a thriller? Were they looking for an action movie? And then what would happen is I would call them up and say, a client X saw your film, which he thought was amazing, by the way, Adam. Um, and he's got, he, you inspired him to come up with this really great idea for a thriller. And he'd love to come in and pitch it to you. And you'd go, oh, really? What? I'd love to hear it. I would then call up the client and say, good news, Adam would love to meet you. You've got two weeks to come up with a really good idea for a thriller. So you would kind of put the two pieces together. So now I'm a young agent. I've got all these clients who have not been employed in, in a little bit of time. And it's like anything. The more you put attention and uh, thought into something, you, you can make anything happen. So now when I go to the studio as a young agent, my job is to cover the studio. What that means is I need to find out what projects do they have that we could put a client in. And then I bring that information back. Now, you can imagine when you go to a big studio and you have clients that nobody wants, you're an agent for 24 hours. You can imagine no one really is excited about meeting you. Um, again, I always think about problems. I go back to the core thing, which is, you know, who's the head of the system and what can I do for them? Now, clearly I can't do anything, anything for them in film, right? I don't have any big clients. I don't have any experience. Um, and I was talking to the assistant. Now, in the film business, assistants fall into two categories. They either don't want to be an assistant and they want to be a producer, an agent, but they want to be something else, or they're a professional. So the chairman of one studio, I was being as charming as I could to this lady, had mentioned that the chairman was spending a lot of time looking at Ivy League schools for his son. So I went away and I spent the whole week and I read every single article I could about the Ivy League colleges, who was better, who was worse, who had better subjects. And I pretty much spent half my week just compiling a document. And when I went to the studio the following week, I dropped off a package and it was basically my assessment of the best Ivy League colleges uh, with notions around what subjects. And I dropped it on her desk and said, hey, um, he might find this interesting. And I drop it off and I, I go about my business. I get a call the next day from her saying, uh, next time you're over, could you pop in and see him? So I'm now at the studio and I'm now sitting outside the chairman of the whole studio's office. And I wait, I come in and quite often I find the people who are the head of organizations 
are the most lovely people who give you the most time because they have less people hassling them. I came in, I asked him for nothing. Um, he said to me, you know, what can I do for you? And I said, well, maybe, you know, when I come over, could you just give me five minutes? And all I'll do is I'll tell you who the biggest, what kind of projects the biggest movie stars are looking for, and then I'll be gone. And he said, sure. Every week I would spend hours waiting for that meeting and I would find out in our internal clients what kind of projects were they looking for, who was available. I would then start listening to what other agencies were looking for, what other big clients were looking for. And I would come in on my five-minute session and all I would do is give him information. This star is looking for a romantic comedy. Um, I heard that that, um, that movie or that studio didn't test very well. I heard that movie, movie tested very well. And I would just give him the highest level things I could find in my week, and I would leave, okay. and that was so it. So you're not you're not still not you're not pitching any of your clients at this point. You're you're just I'm not pitching any clients. So all I try to do is just give him information. Now he probably knew most of the information, yeah. but the way I looked at it was I was you know I was making sure his team would stay on their toes because he would know these things if he didn't, um, and that's all I did. And then about three, four weeks into this, I got a phone call from the president's office and they said, when you come over next, could you please come and see the president? So now I'm in with the president. And then of course, if the president's meeting with me, the senior VP wants to meet with me. Uh, and then the VP wants to meet with me. And all of a sudden the development executives go, you should come see me. <laughs> so my kind of success at that studio was really not based on initially any film stuff. It was based on me helping him with something that he had to do himself, which was, all right, Ivy League schools, who's good, who's not good, what's happening, who's getting better, who's getting worse. So I found that thing that was of value to him. And I started my relationship by giving away the gold. And it took, it was a slower process to get where I wanted to get to. But suddenly I arrived at this level, which is, well, if Nick is talking to the chairman, then obviously I need to be quote unquote nice. But then when I met those executives, I did exactly the same thing, which is I didn't go in the door selling. I'm saying, look, I want to make your job easier. What can I bring you to help you? And then, of course, once you get a bit of time going, they go, okay, well, how can I help you back? So it's kind of like, I think maybe you wrote about it in one of your books. It's like, you know, the Harry Christians in America raised so much money by going into public transportation and airports and train stations, giving you these little flowers and you would give them a dollar to get rid of them. Because once somebody gives you something, you inherently have a kind of a slight guilt that you want to give back. So that that really has been my, my main philosophy, which is whoever you go to, spend the time and energy to really understand who they are and what they're interested in. Because I find then that the, the person says, feels like you respected them. You haven't just come in willy-nilly and just, you know, you haven't spent that time. If you take the time and trouble I feel like you suddenly get respected, and now you just at a much better level of communication. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. So, so okay. So, how long does this phase of your life last? How long are you an agent like this before you move into the the, the franchise movie side of your career? Um, so, I'm a young agent, and the other thing is because I'm British in Hollywood, um, I get every single period movie that has ever been written <laughs> because obviously period movies are tricky to get made, and I'm English. So at the beginning, uh, and they're not very commercial, by the way, uh, generally speaking. So uh, my early success was then driven by like every single period drama you've ever read. Um, and I had this kind of moment um, where I was thinking, you know, in advertising, when you have something successful, let's take cornflakes, you go, great, cornflakes is a great product. People love it. What are you going to do? Well, you make family size, you make travel size. You make uh, budget packs, you, you put strawberry slices in, you basically try to extrapolate every single element of cornflakes to every particular, you know, any buyer you can find. And I, and I woke up one morning and I think, you know, it's so hard to get a movie made. Why would you ever not make a movie that was a franchise? Now, at that time, this is 30 years ago, you know, you had the James Bond movies, you had Superman. I think you had Lethal Weapon 2 maybe, but franchises were really kind of looked down upon, you know, and no one was really doing it. And I suddenly thought to myself, franchises, like, again, I'm going to just focus as much as possible on franchises. Well, the great thing about franchises is, is that you're, when you're an agent, your clients are basically 
unemployed most of the time. The moment an actor, a director, a writer has got a job, you know in a couple months' time they're unemployed. That's the nature of the business. So the way to get them back to work is a franchise. Now, the way to make most money is you have a successful franchise. The studio is going to want to repeat the same team, which means you have leverage. So generally speaking, you know, a director in those days was making $250,000, which was like DGA scale. Um, and, um, and then you would, could get them $2 million. So on a franchise picture, you could take a director and basically 10 times increase right. their money. Fascinating. And a writer could go from, a baby writer could go from 150 to 250 to a million dollars. Now, they couldn't get that on another project. But if your first movie had made money for the studio, the studio was more willing to reinvest the money they had made. So now the budget got much, much bigger and all the elements. Um, so you've only got to do that once, Adam, to take a director from 250 to $2 million and a writer from 250 to a million dollars to go, this is a good business. <laughs> Um, so, you know, uh, uh, one of the ironies is actually I did do, I was involved in the movie Elizabeth. I took uh, an Indian director and I basically put him into that film and that ultimately Elizabeth, you know, that became a sequel too. But most of those movies, of course, were Austin Powers. So what's fascinating about Austin Powers is the golden rule that um, a great writer wrote, uh, William Goldman, which is no one knows anything. So that script obviously was written by Mike Myers. It was about the swinging, swinging London. I thought the script was absolutely brilliant, but people read that script and no one liked it. And I represented a, a gentleman called Jay Roach, who was a cinematographer who, who had known Mike and was kind of advising Mike on what he thought it should be and giving him director ideas. And in the way he explained to Mike what he thought the movie should be, Mike started to see that he would be the perfect director. Um, now, you know, Mike Myers was not hot at the time. He was on a downward trajectory. And... Uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube. Uh, New Line, who was the studio, had partnered with a foreign company. So they were only on the hook for sort of less than half the budget. And they were nervous, very nervous, because the script, a lot of Americans didn't, didn't get the script. And they said, if you make it for this number, which is a low number for a studio picture, we'll greenlight the movie. So miraculously, the budget went in, and it was $1 less than the greenlight number, and the movie got made. Um, and the thing about that movie, which went on to become Austin Powers 2 and Austin Powers 3, is the first movie did about, I think, just over 50 million. But the second and third movie did over 200 million. And the reason for it was the movie was kind of okay successful up front in the, in the movie theaters. But on DVD, which at that time was a major driver, uh, it did like three or four times what it should have done because people so loved the sayings. And people were running around going, yeah, baby, all right, baby. Um, and it became almost like Monty Python to, to an older generation where the more you repeated the joke, the funnier it got. And that became basically the big breakout, one of my first breakout um, franchises, um, which I said that to do $200 million on that small movie was, was, was probably like four times over-indexing of what it should have done. So the first part of this conversation has essentially been about not simply how do you get somebody interested at the one-to-one -one level, how do you get somebody interested in somebody or something they are not interested in? We saw one answer to that when Addison talked about the challenge as a science teacher a few episodes ago, which was making the subject more relatable to the pupils, talking about it in their language. Nick's is a very different approach. You start, he said, by giving the other person something of value to them. Not necessarily a professional value, by the way, it can be personal value, but give it early give it quickly, ask for nothing in return at this stage. In doing so, you show you respect them and are, bit by bit, making yourself more interesting to the other person. And for Nick, it developed a spirit of reciprocity as we saw from the other side and took the relationship gradually to a level where he could then start to pitch them what he wanted to pitch them and get some interest from the other side. And the underpinning of that, this one-to-one -one level, is spending the time and energy to really understand the other person and what matters to them. And isn't it striking the difference between this approach to the development of interest and that of viral content? This approach at a one-to-one -one level is as long and slow burn a development of a relationship as the latter needs to be instant and quick. Context, as ever, is so important for us in how we make things more interesting. And wasn't intriguing, by the way, 
about is Austin Powers' story and the level of increased commercial value that comes from that franchise heritage. So let's move on now to Nick's current role as the co-founder of Shareability and explore what makes something interesting enough to share. Tell us about what the inspiration for setting up and co-founding Shareability and this new kind of business was. Um, so I was working on movies that were probably, and when I say working on movies, I represented talent, whether that be the, the, the director, the writer, or, or an actor. And some of these movies are $200 million. A really, really good friend of mine is a genius game creator. Uh, he's got a game called Star Citizen. Um, and, and I could just see that the gaming market was just growing so quickly and was actually now worth more than the film business. So I started to see that, you know, film had kind of, to me, had kind of crossed its heyday as a business. Television is a business because that's like you turn the TV on, you need something to be on and there's a gazillion channels. And I had started thinking about what's next. And I, again, I had one of those moments where I thought, you know, the phone is probably one of the most, the mobile phone is probably one of the most powerful pieces of equipment that we're ever going to have. Now, at the time, this is like iPhone 3, maybe iPhone 4, around that period. So so the, the screen is small, but we are now watching you know videos on it. And of course, as we know, it's really a, compu- a supercomputer, not a phone. You know, the phone is but one app that lives in the, in the app system. Um, and I was thinking, you know, uh, there was a survey I read and it said, if you left your wallet and your phone at home, and you can only go back and get one thing, what would it be? And of course, everybody said their phone. And this started sparking my interest in, in the phone and what does the phone do? And I met my now partner, Tim Staples. So Tim had come out of sports marketing. Um, he had also come to the sort of same thinking too, which is digital is going to become the most powerful thing in the world. And the thing that we all agreed on was that the phone was the gateway. So how do you connect to new customers or how do you connect to your existing customers? Well, the answer is the phone. So then the question becomes, well, how do you get to them? You go, well, at the time, YouTube was the only video, had the only video player. Facebook was really, uh, people were posting YouTube videos on Facebook. Um, And we both got really excited by this idea of basically trying to become the the king of YouTube. Uh, we would get together once a month at this Korean bar. We would drink too much and we would try and come up with a great idea for a company to do together. And then we suddenly said, um, I, I met uh, through a friend of mine, this young kid out of Utah who talked about the work he was doing on YouTube. And I thought, wow, he's he's figured out uh, how to basically, how the algorithm works. So I called up Tim and said, look, I think there's an opportunity for us to basically go own viral videos for brands on YouTube. And uh, that's what we did. And uh, we had a lot of trouble trying to come up with a name. And we didn't want to call it Shareability because it just didn't seem like a sexy name. But we thought, what does the company do? Well, the mantra of the company is we want to do shareable content because you know we didn't have big media budgets and our early clients had no money. So the video had to do all the work. You know, In those first videos, we didn't have media budgets. So literally, organically, the video went up and it failed or it succeeded. And you know, unlike advertising where you can always say certain things happened or you had a million impressions, you know, when you put a video on YouTube, you know, a week later, it has no views or it has views and it has likes or it doesn't have likes and you can't hide. So it was a very scary business when we started because literally a week after launch of the video, well, you would know within about three to six hours in those days, um, you know, you knew whether you had done a good job or not. And it was quite, it was quite scary because you couldn't, you couldn't hide. Yeah, I bet. Well, tell us. So, so now clearly the business has evolved, and now you are as much strategic as content creators. And in fact, you are the primary strategic partner to YouTube, as I understand it, on on kind of shareable content and influencers. But tell us a little bit about. I mean, in the principle of us, the whole podcast obviously is let's make it more interesting. And I'm really intrigued about the idea about what makes something interesting enough to share. What what would be your kind of four or five key learnings from right from those very early days to now about what makes something interesting enough to share? Well, I think for me, when people talk about engagement of a piece of content, what that really means is listening, right? So you see a video and it has a million views, but then you look and see it has five comments and it's got 40 likes. 
that means that that's you know someone is paid to get views, but there's no engagement. So the first golden rule is you know you have three to five seconds on TikTok less. That first um, opening is so important, and that's why I say give away some gold because I have to make you stay to hear what else I'm going to tell you. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how great it is; no one's going to listen. The headline, you know, one of the things we we talked about in the early days was that we would go out and pitch the videos to press and uh, news outlets, and it was all about the headline. And we said to ourselves, if we don't have a headline, we don't have a video, because if you can't encapsulate. Um, why I'm interested in your video in a headline, well, then the chances are the video is not very good. And I think the big difference between us and an advertising agency is we probably are much more similar to a PR agency. So when a public relations agency is out pitching, they're thinking, how am I going to get the journalists excited that there's an audience for this? And it's all about the headline. Um, so if you get the headline, chances are now you've actually got an idea that's engaging. And the great thing about a headline is you can tell five different people the headline. And if they all, if they all don't care, well, then you've got no headline. But if you tell five people a headline, they go, oh, what happened then? Well, what's that about? Now you have a chance, you know? So, so the first thing was you got to start strong. And we've got to have a headline that actually makes you go, what's that about? Now, within the video, you've got to basically try and get some emotion, emotional connection. If you can get an emotional connection, you can drive an action. Now, for us, what we wanted for our action was we wanted you to share it. So in the early days, it would be a YouTube video would get put on your Facebook page so all your friends could see it. And the hope would be that you'd go, oh, my God, I love that. I'm going to share that on my Facebook page. And then you'd have this network effect. Now, that would only happen if I could give you something so I could make you laugh. Um, I tell you an inspiring story. I, I show you snowboarding in the clouds. You're like, oh, my God, that's incredible. You know, So it's about trying to connect with something that makes you stop for a moment and actually pay attention so much so that you're willing to go share, click, and you're gone with your day. So what that normally means is that if we're trying to create new followers or new people to be aware of a brand, Let's not start with a brand because the moment I start with a brand, you've already gone. I need to start with something that gets your attention because once I've got your attention, now I can make you smile, I can make you laugh, I can, give, I can inspire you. Now you're listening and now I want to be very careful that you've given me the respect of listening. Now I want to basically just touch upon the brand, right? And in many cases, you know, people call that top of funnel. All I want to do is put the name of the brand or maybe the little communication line in the video in a very uh, nice, easy way, because I'm not looking to sell you right now. I'm just making you to go, oh. So with um, we had a, 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 um, a large telecom client we worked with, and they, were, they had a sub-brand, which was kind of the, the more value brand. And the, the pitch was basically, let's make people like you. Well, no one loves their telecom provider, right? They'll let you charge me too much money. I've got overages, I've got roaming. So like, let's just see if we can make, you know, make someone like you. And we had all these beautiful videos that were inspiring, that were funny. And what they started to find was people will actually like the brand. And along with liking the brand, the, you know, the, the customers went up. So over three years of working with this brand, you know, they doubled their subscribers. Now, I'm not saying we doubled their subscribers ourselves, but we played a part of that, which is people associated the brand with, oh my God, I love their videos. And it just built that brand affinity to people that when the when the new video came out, people would watch it happily because they knew they were going to get something out of it and they would share it with their friends. So we managed to kind of build this thing around, oh my God, I kind of like my telecom provider. Um, so the sales was really through the through that affinity rather than, hey, here's a plan. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. So strong opening, strong headline. If you haven't got a headline, you haven't got a story, thinking like a journalist emotional connection to really kind of drive an action, recognizing that unless you've got a strong idea to get them engaged in, there's no point in talking about the brand, really. The idea comes first, the brand comes second. In a sense, I know they're integrated. What else? Um, so for me, we would spend most of our time, uh, no, no surprise, in the beginning and the end of the video. So um, it's changed now because the ecosystem has changed so much because of the kind of the uh, consolidation of all the news outlets. But at the end of the day, the most important is the beginning of a video. So on a, on, a, on a two to four minute video we would do, we would probably do 20 different beginnings 
and we would test them all. Because if you can't get someone to hold for that first three to five seconds, as I said, the rest of it is immaterial. Um, quite often, a lot of mistakes I see from people is they do what I call the film uh, video, where it starts with introducing, starring, da-da-da-da. Well, I've gone already, you know? <laughs> Start with the gold. Start with the gold straight away. Now, sh should it be one second? Should it be two seconds? You know, uh, Instagram... Facebook tend to be sound off, which means I need graphics. People go, each platform has its own nuance. So YouTube tends to be sound on and they tend to be longer videos. Facebook tried really hard to get people to spend more time watching video on Facebook. Maybe not as successful as it still needs to be. Uh, Instagram, right? Everyone's playing around with like, how do we be like TikTok? But the thing is that people watch content, you know, obviously a lot of it on mobile. And where are they? Where if they're at work, they can't have sound on. So what you'll see is graphics. So graphics become really important. And I think, you know, that to me is the thing that most people don't understand. It's like you've got to go in giving up gold, giving up value. So the person's defenses go down and say, oh, he actually knows who I am. He knows what I do, right? He's taken the time and effort to learn that. So now I feel respected. And now he's given me some ideas, which are actually really good ideas. And I think that that, that process no matter what communication medium you're in, it is the key to so many, so many things. And what I'm hearing you say is also do that early, right? So in the case of the podcast, tell them what the good stuff is in the podcast right at the front end so they know what's coming. Don't make them wait for it effectively. Yes. So, you know, there was a kind of a golden rule when we were doing viral videos. And the idea was you'd always normally give up the second best thing in the video would be in the first five seconds. Now, that second thing would actually be later in the video also which logically doesn't make sense. But when you watch a video and you see a quick section come in, you go, oh, that's interesting. When you see it later, you it doesn't register that you've already seen it because now we're putting it into a narrative story. So it's the it's the notion of, okay, so what I'm going to tell you today is I'm going to tell you how, how things go viral, right? The company I founded with my partner, Tim, is called Shareability. The simple principle was that we think word of mouth is one of the most powerful things ever. So we could get people to share a video online. For us, that was basically word of mouth at scale. And the only way you get sharing is to give something of value. And so our idea was, look, if we could get people that actually shared the messaging, right, that's what we call magnetic. Um, but again, the, the success of those videos were because we hit somebody with an emotion, like we or um, made them laugh, it inspired them. And if you can get an emotional connection to your storytelling, whether it's verbal, whether it's audiovisual, right? People will now listen much, much better. And now you have a chance that people will talk about um, what you're trying with the points you're trying to get across. So it's ultimately giving up the goal to me means what's in it for the other person. And I'm going to start every conversation with particularly new people by giving them something of value. So at the beginning, I got to hook you. Then I've got to start bringing emotionally a reason why you're going to watch the rest of it. And if you, if I can connect you to it, then I have a chance of the thing that I want is I want you to share it. So now what is my outro, right? Um, we did, so we actually did, um, uh, we did something for prostate. So, you know, for men, if you can spot prostate cancer early, you can totally cure it. Um, and if you get it late, it's bad, but like people were like not wanting to have a conversation. So we took a comedian and uh, we took him to a prostate clinic and we he interviewed people who had just coming out of anesthetic. And he had these jokes, he had these x-rays and he said, we, we took an x-ray and we found your car keys. Are you, are you missing your car keys? <laughs> and um, now remember the people are out of it. They're like, what? And then they're looking at the car key x-ray and they're like, those aren't my keys. The video blew up. And of course, what it did was it talked about something very serious which is prostate cancer. But the entry was through this kind of prank and it just kind of put everyone's guard down. And suddenly we had this incredible dialogue and conversation about men's uh, prostate health. Um, but what it was, was you were having a really good time laughing, going, oh my God, can you imagine that? But of course, now you're thinking about, oh, well, should I get checked out? So of course that had a very straightforward call to action, which is look, hey, this may not be for you, but if you know someone uh, yeah, you might be able to, you might be able to save their life. So it was about trying to then understand the value of of what we were talking about. 
Um, but you're always thinking about now, where do I want to lead you? Do I want it to share with a friend? Do I want to, what is that next step that I want you to, to take? So what have we learned here about what it takes to be interesting enough to share? Well, Nick's foundational thought here surely has a broader relevance for us, doesn't it? The need to have a headline. We need to think more like journalists, he says. If you don't have a headline, you don't have a story. If you don't have a headline, you don't have a video. Like so much of what we've heard over the last 12 episodes, it's such a simple but important idea. How can we expect to interest the audience if we don't have a clear, simple articulation of the thought we want to interest them in? And he then went on to offer four building blocks, didn't he? Some of which linked intriguingly to themes we've come across before in the last three months. First, you've got to create an emotional connection, like John York, like Peter Field told us. Second, in terms of those emotions, think big, simple emotions. Feeling inspired, feeling awe, laughter. These are the things that people want to share with others. Third, focus on getting the shareable idea first and then think about how to link it to your message or brand or business. This idea very much the thing that Norman and Russell had also shared with us. The hard thing is getting the big idea that makes people interested. Focus on that first. Fourth, pay particular attention to the beginning and the end of your piece of video. As indeed Professor Holmes Henderson also recommended, based on all her understanding of classical rhetoric, the principles of Western rhetoric first articulated two and a half thousand years ago, still echoed in the recipe for viral content today. I should add one other point here, which came up in the conversation with Nick after we'd finished recording, when I asked him why he thought so much of what businesses and brands produce is unintentionally dull. And his answer was that the bar, the real bar in the world around us, what our audience finds genuinely worth their attention, is in reality much higher than the bar we seem to think it is inside our company. There is a significantly higher expectation amongst our audience than we think, and it's going up all the time. So in the next section, let's look at how to win an Oscar. How to win an Oscar with a budget of what Nick described in an interview at the time as about 35 cents, a bus token, and some bits of old chewing gum. A film called The Lady in Number Six that initially nobody wanted to show, but one that ultimately, he says, changed the whole way he sees life because of what he learned from its remarkable protagonist. Back to Nick. So let's come on and talk about your documentary. How did you find this remarkable woman and how did you come to think of documentary as being the way you wanted to bring her to the world's attention? Um, I'm a member of the Academy by virtue of being an agent with a lot of clients who had uh, been nominated and won Oscars. And I had gone to the Academy's uh, awards um, the year before I started the documentary. And I was so blown away by the documentary section because there are literally people, documentary filmmakers, risking their lives, making no money, bringing back these incredible stories in, in a day and age where people are talking about the size of someone's bottom or, or who's dating who. Um, I just thought, wow, this is, this is kind of the, the really the, the news reporting that matters. And um, I went to the bathroom at the break and that's one of the moments when your brain goes into neutral. It doesn't think about anything. And I thought, you know what? I've been an agent. I just left agenting. I thought I've been an agent sort of 20 plus years. I want to do something for my soul. And I called up a filmmaker, a documentary director who I represented and said, look, I really want to do a documentary. And he said, I've just come back from London and I've met, I've met this 106-year-old, uh, the oldest living Holocaust survivor who's a classical pianist and she's amazing. And for five minutes, he told me a little bit about her. And I had this voice in my head that pops up every 10 years, it seems. And it said, that's the kind of film that could win an Academy Award. You have to tell that story. So um, um, I was in between projects at the time. I wrote a check because I thought she's 106. We better get started pretty quickly. So you financed it yourself, this film? So I financed the, the initial shoot myself, uh, which really, if I'd, been, if I'd been logical about it, I wouldn't have done because I, I was in the middle of setting up a new company and I had no cash flow. Um, but I just, I, I got hit with that feeling. I'm like, I just have to do this. We went, we filmed. And when we got the footage back of, of her, it, she's a movie star. She was just unbelievable. Um, she had, um, she was able to connect with anyone, like no matter what kind of ego or what protection you have, 
from the outside world. You would meet with this woman and you would see a 106-year-old Holocaust survivor and you would have just, you would just go straight into your heart. And, uh, you know, some of her favorite sayings were like, I was born Jewish, but my religion is Beethoven. <laughs> um, she goes, only I decide if I'm having a bad day. Only I decide. You know, even in the bad, there is good. And she was just this incredible, like, uh, fountain of these great one-liners about life. I would say she changed my life, probably about 50% of my life, because I just left agenting. And everyone was like, well, what are you, you going to do now? And, you know, what I got from her was curiosity. Curiosity keeps you young. Passion makes you want to get up in the morning. Um, and I think the courage to change, you know, and she took up uh, learning philosophy at the age of 100. <laughs> and I think those, those things really resonate with me. So we decided to make the film. Um, I put up the initial money to get shooting. And then I called a good friend of mine, a guy called Chris Branch. Uh, and I said, Chris, um, I've got some good news. I've got this incredible documentary and you're going to put some money up. You're not going to get it back, but it's going to be amazing. <laughs> And he, and he laughed and, and he, he joined in too. Uh, and we started, to, we started to make this this film. And everything that could go wrong went wrong. We didn't have enough resources. So the filmmaker, a gentleman called Malcolm Clark, who had actually won an Oscar before, um, uh, basically had people that wanted to help, but we had to wait for them to finish their day job. To imagine every single thing you can imagine that could go wrong on a film. It, it went wrong. Um, and it, it basically came to a climax when the film was finished. I thought, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send this film to the smallest Jewish film festivals in America. So small, I've never heard of them because there's no way they're not going to say, we would like to screen your film in the, in the festival. And I remember over the course of about five or six days, I got responses back from them saying, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. And on, one, on the last day, I got two on the same day. And I was like, am I out of my mind? Do I, absolutely, do I know nothing about filmmaking? I mean, I've been in filmmaking for 25 years. I've been involved in some of the biggest film franchises, and I'm being told by these festivals that my film is not good enough to even be in the festival. Went out in the garden, looked at the sky, was like, anything else you want to tell me? <laughs> um, and I was pretty kind of depressed and angry for about a couple of hours. And then I basically found my inside self again. I'm like, no, I know what I'm doing. This is an unbelievable story. She's wrong. So the question becomes is how do I get people objectively to say this film is amazing and I get away from subjectivity? Well, the answer to that question is let's make it go viral. So before we get there, so do you know why they were turning it down? I don't. I don't. I mean, I can only imagine that basically you had junior people whose job it was was to see films. Maybe they saw too many films. You know, maybe they didn't get past the first 30 seconds. I, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of mind-boggling. But it ultimately gave me more passion. So when I have a project that I love and someone says no to me, I have an inner monologue, which is what the do they know, I'm going to show them. So for me, it actually fuels my, my desire to succeed. Um, so I thought to myself, so I, I reached out to some friends, by the way, during this period to raise money for the film. And, and I knew I know a lot of people in Hollywood, as you can imagine, and there are a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood. And I was very unsuccessful because what I got back from them was, we don't need another Holocaust movie. Nick, you're not Jewish. Nick, you don't have any musical talent. And Nick, you've never produced a movie before. Uh, good luck. Um, so again, I'm thinking about, okay, well, my headline, I've got a terrible headline. So I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about it. And I started thinking about what Alice meant to me and what I had learned from Alice. And what I realized was that she had actually taught me how to live a little happier and I was going to live a little longer for it. So then I thought, that's it. So then I went out to people and said, hey, guys, I'd love you to, get, I'd love you to send you this promo on my film. Um, it's going to help you live longer and happier. Oh, I'd like to see that because everybody wants to live longer and happier. So then I started to manage to kind of get 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks, and I started to kind of get some fundraising. And I thought to myself, well, that's how I need to sell the movie. So selling the movie is a byproduct of me trying to figure out how to raise money. 
So I basically did the trailer that you have to do. But a trailer of a movie inherently is not shareable. I mean, if you're a massive Marvel fan, you might share it. But most people watch a trailer, they don't share it. So what I thought to myself is I'm going to do an infomercial. I'm going to treat the film as the product I'm trying to sell, and I'm going to put together an infomercial. So if you go to YouTube and put Lady in Number 6, you will find an 11-minute piece of the film, and it's basically the best of. It's gold, gold, gold. I'm just giving the gold away like crazy. And um, I put the film up on YouTube, and I have $5,000 to market the film coming out of my own pocket, plus you know $100 here, $200 from friends. And I get a couple of friends together and I say, right, we need to break down the audience for this movie. So we went to pianos, right? Piano teachers, piano association, uh, students, music colleges, uh, Holocaust, Jewish. So we, we try to break it down in terms of as many people as we possibly could. And then we wrote a letter or an email and a letter in some cases to these organizations explaining why they should check it out. And initially, the video launched, it had like 25 views, which were the 25 people that were helping me, and we were hitting it. Um, we got lucky. The piano, so the piano Teachers Association saw it, loved it, sent a link to 8,000 uh, 8, teachers. The teachers, in turn, showed all their students because it was a perfect example of why you should learn the piano. And suddenly, we were going viral, something we were trending towards 250,000 views. Then the second bit of good fortune was we were looking at uh, sites that had good news on them. So there was a site called Upworthy, and it had these stories every day, a couple of stories a day about uplifting really wonderful things. And they did a little story on Alice, posted the video, and they had like a couple million people on their Facebook page. Again, another 250,000 people. So now we were sort of trending 500,000 people. We had momentum, and now people were talking about it. And when people talk about it, you start getting the, the wheel kicks in. And suddenly I was at a million views. I've been calling up Netflix. I've been calling up anybody I could about the film, but no one was calling me back. Now I'm sending them an email going, hey, by the way, we just crossed a million views. Hello, is that Nick? We'd like to talk to you about your documentary. So, so for me, the lesson there was uh, in the creative world, something is good or bad. But how can I explain to you objectively that it is good? Because you might say, Nick, I don't like that trailer that film but you can't argue with a million people over about four or five weeks saying oh my god and then the the comments were like oh my god she's amazing i can't wait to see the film so now all of a sudden i've taken my film and i've made it objective <laughs> people want to see the film here are the things people are saying there's an audience and that kind of got me over the hump and suddenly netflix called me and said oh we're interested in your film now they were only interested in my film once I had the million views, I had all the content, I had all the, the reviews and people were saying, oh my God, we can't wait to see it. So then you find yourself nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, so great little funny story there. I'm flying back from Seattle where my kids, I'm divorced where my kids are. And um, I completely got the time wrong when they give the announcements out. I'm, making, I'm waking up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., I just can't sleep. And when the announcement comes out, I think it's like 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm so tired I've slept through my alarm and I've completely missed it. I get back to LAX, I'm in the back of a taxi, I'm talking to people who are calling me, thanking me, you know, congratulating me for the film. And I hang up and the taxi driver, who's probably um, Arab American, probably early 60s, says to me, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Um, did you make the film about the, uh, the Holocaust uh, survivor who plays the piano, whose son plays the cello? I said, yes. I said, how do you know that? He goes, I saw it on YouTube. It looks amazing. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about the, the social platforms, right? You can connect to people that you could never even imagine. And that, that was one of my favorite memories was that a taxi driver in his late 50s, 60s had seen the infomercial that I had put together. Yeah, amazing. So so then, then can you influence the members of the Academy at all? I mean, is there a campaign you can do to help you in your chances of actually getting the Oscar or not? So what I did is if, if people go to, the, my, to YouTube and they look lady in number six, you'll see I have like 50 videos. So what I did is I took, I had the infomercial, I had the trailer, and then I did loads of little like two minute videos. And the headline would be, um, I was born Jewish, but my, my religion is Beethoven. I would have all these amazing little clips that Alice had done and I separated them out. So there's like 16 little clips right there. 
Then I had interviews of people who had just come out of the film talking about how how they how they loved the film, how she was amazing, what it meant to them. I had one uh, friend of mine, a big writer, who called me the next day to say his nine-year-old son, who had come to the, the premiere, had asked him to start playing the piano. So I had all these really amazing vi uh, little videos of people. And everywhere you went, you put short documentary, Lady Number Six would pop up, and it had all this smorgasbord of stuff. And if you put up any of the other films, including the HBO film, you couldn't really find them. So what I did as best I could is made sure that when it came to the documentary short category, that my film was the first film that would come up anywhere. Um, so I just basically worked that relentlessly. I ended up writing an article for the LA Times about what it's like to be nominated. Um, um, there was a shorts festival, but basically you just do every single thing you can to get the word out. Because my belief is that if people know the name of the film, they'll check it out. And I was very fortunate that I got to a place, you know, where I was nominated and now I'm down to five films and I'm at the, you know, for the film world, the biggest event of the year. And it's kind of crazy that I was an agent for all that time. And as an agent, you can never win an Oscar because you're the business end. And here I am on the creative end. Um, and, and I spent my $5,000, basically probably I spent a thousand dollars on free pizza to my friends. Um, I probably spent another thousand dollars, uh, in shipping. Um, sending stuff out and probably the, and, and then the other $3,000 was really kind of buying favors from people like someone was a Twitter expert I'm like hey can I give you a couple hundred bucks to do this for me so it was really just trying to focus very much on vert very narrow verticals very small targets and trying to make a very small target move because if you go for everybody you can't really get any momentum so it was all about focusing on really really tiny audience segmentation and just putting all your massive $250 into that one little segment. So I spent quite a lot of time this week, um, not only watching kind of your shareable videos, but also watching um, uh, quite a lot of stuff about the lady in number six. And I also watched the bit where you discover you won the Oscar and you're incredibly cool about it. You look like it's kind of just another day at the office, but how did you actually feel at that moment? So there is a thing called the Gold Derby. The Gold Derby is like 29, 30 journalists. And what happens is they vote before the ceremony on who is gonna win. And there are, I forget how many categories, 40, 40 odd categories. And the only category that every single uh, reviewer agreed on that was gonna win was my film. Um, and the other thing, oh, the other thing I forgot to tell you is, um, I very rarely dream, uh, or at least that I remember, um, I finished the film and the film had not been shortlisted yet. So I was in the process of just trying to get word of mouth, setting up screenings, trying to get people to see the film. And I woke up one morning and I woke up with the opening line of my acceptance speech. And I thought, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, so I woke up thinking I'd won the Oscar and I thought, well, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, so we go to the ceremony, everyone in the business is telling me I'm going to win. So it's, it's a very strange thing. And in a strange way, I had a lot of anxiety. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, I hope I win. I was thinking everyone's telling me I'm going to win. There's not one person, you know, and these are like seasoned professional journalists and I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. So when they called my name out, what you actually see on my face is relief. I have so much relief that everyone has told me I'm going to win that I won. So that's not to say I was not excited, but it was, it just got to this level where I just don't know what would have happened, you know, had, had I not won. And obviously being nominated is, is in itself is incredible. So that look on my face was such relief that this, this waking up thinking I'm going to win an Oscar, and then everyone telling me I'm going to win an Oscar had actually come to full fruition. And then from then on, it was an out-of-body experience. Uh, when you see me get up on stage, there's a video on YouTube, Nick Reed winning an Oscar. Um, and you'll see I look around the whole stage, and it scared the living out of me, right? I'm looking at 5,000, 10,000, I forget how many people are there. And I'm, you know, being on stage is an incredible jolt of adrenaline, which is why Hugh Jackman loves theater. And you just like hold it together, hold it together. And there's supposedly a big clock with a countdown saying, hurry up, hurry up, you know, 10 seconds. And I, and I didn't see the clock. I was so focused on just not looking at anything because I didn't want to freak out. 
I go backstage and I meet Bradley Cooper. Um, you know, he's like, congratulations. I'm like, yeah, Bradley. Yeah, of course. Thanks. You know, and I'm, and I, and I'm just, I can't explain it, but the adrenaline is rushing through the body. Uh, go to the governor's ball, meet Sandra Bullock. I mean, every, when you have an Oscar, everybody comes up and says hi. You know, it's like you, you meet every single famous person in the world. It's, hey, congrats, Tom. You know, you name it. I go to the Vanity Fair party um, and I'm drinking. I've been drinking now for probably seven or eight hours, but I have no buzz whatsoever. The adrenaline is so, so massive, you know. And um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Neil Patrick Harris, I'm meeting all these people and they're, and they're saying to me, could I take a picture with you? I'm like... <laughs> Okay. Um, and then at three o'clock, I'm at the In N Out Burger at the Vanity Fair party, and the In N Out Burger is closing down, and I'm with Bill Murray. And Bill basically convinces the In N Out guy not to shut down and make a few more burgers. So there I am at 3 a.m. with Bill Murray, completely sourced, but not feeling sourced, having a hamburger. I go back to the hotel, which is kind of a couple doors down, and I walk in the, the bedroom door and I pass out. I wake up in the morning on the ground. Suddenly all the adrenaline had disappeared. All the alcohol had just hit me and I passed out and had the worst hangover I think I've ever had. But it was an outer body experience that was, it was surreal. You're meeting every movie star in the world. They're coming up to you and talking to you and you're just like- Amazing. Strange. And so of course, the other question I have to ask you is where do you keep your Oscar? I mean, is it is it in the downstairs loo? Is it, you know, in your study? Is it in the it's right there look at that yeah, so it's it's actually on the bookshelf um and then what happens is if i go to a meeting and it's a creative meeting and i i haven't met the client yeah. sometimes i'll bring it because sometimes the question becomes well what happens if we have an issue you know creatively on the project i'm like i pull this out of my bag i'm like well <laughs> i have some creative track record <laughs> very good and then uh, people react very differently with the Oscar. Some people won't touch it. It's like the Holy Grail and they, they don't want to touch it. They don't think they're worthy. Uh, but most people, of course, want to hold it and they want to want to play with it. Um, so occasionally it comes off the shelf Excellent. Uh, for Excellent. new meetings because the chances of actually holding an Oscar is so rare that I, I, I love the, the way people feel because it, it – reconnects me to the experience to see the happiness on someone's yes, face lovely. to hold the oscar lovely. it helps me relive um you know the, the wonderful moments that i had when i first got it and, and do you have to polish it does it tarnish at all or does it just look after itself it's actually in pretty bad shape actually because they don't seal it so where people hold it on the base oh, right. you can oh, see yeah. that all the yeah. gold leaf is yeah. coming off gosh so it actually she needs a bit of a cleanup or he needs a bit of a cleanup there was lots i learned from this fascinating story and front and centre for me was how changing the headline about Alice changed the whole way people thought about exactly the same film. So interesting. It reminded me actually of a Richard Curtis story that I shared in episode three, where he puts that scene of Bridget Jones singing all by myself in her bedsit right at the beginning of the film, and how that entirely changed people's response to it. Because in a sense, that scene was Richard Curtis's equivalent of Nick's headline. It tells you so much about who Bridget Jones is, what she wants, whether she's successful in getting it or not, and how she feels about that lack of success, and therefore whether you care about any of those things. And the other thing this section reminded me of was the observation from the writer of Industrial Theatre in episode one about how when it's a matter of life and death, you can't afford to bore the audience. There was a point here, wasn't there, where Nick's documentary could have died on the vine but he chose instead to reframe the way he was thinking about promoting it, to think about it instead as a product that needed an infomercial, break down its potential audiences, and so changed its fortunes. Because it wouldn't have been immediately obvious, surely, that the Piano Teachers Association would be the people that ultimately got Netflix to want to show it. And then again, Nick could simply have left its Oscar chances in the hand of the entertainment gods, but he didn't. He made sure that when anyone searched for it, it came up first, and he worked that tiny budget, focusing on very narrow verticals as hard as he could, making lots of different versions of the same mini film. And finally, we're going to round out with two lovely stories for those of you that have ever wondered, actually, how you could get to be a leg model, or indeed, what it would take to be cast in a Steven Spielberg film. And then we'll close with what's next for Let's Make This More Interesting, and indeed, putting a cost on dull. 
So here's Nick right back at the beginning of his life in Los Angeles. So at some point in this journey, you also been cast in Hook as Robin Williams's father, directed by Steven Spielberg. So where in this journey does that come in? Um, so I was in the States, taking some time off, uh, hanging with a friend of mine who was a, an athlete who ran for Great Britain. And I came across a guy called Steve Scott, who at the time was the American, American mile record holder, and a New Zealand gold medalist called John Walker. And John was 39 years old, and he was trying to become the first 40-year-old to uh, run the sub-four-minute mile. Um, this got me into Beverly Hills a little bit because um, I was helping kind of manage, manage these athletes. And I met a company that represented semi-pro and uh, pro athletes, and uh, they ran events. And I would help them out because they loved the work I was doing for, the, for those athletes. And there was an audition one day uh, for Adidas, basically to be a leg model. And uh, this was kind of beneath uh, the, the runners that I was friends with that I was managing. So I basically sent myself on the audition. Um, and as there's a saying, if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you must be a duck. So I used to train with them, but I'm not a great runner. Um, but I got from them what would be a good 5K time, what would be a good 10K time, what my marathon time would be, which I have not run. Um, and I went in for the audition and they had me uh, run on a, a treadmill so they could film me running. And then I told them about my fantastic times that I had run. And they said, well, you look like a runner. You talk like a runner. You must be a runner. And uh, I was cast. So I became an Adidas leg model. Um, I remember about six weeks later, I'm driving up the uh, 405 to Los Angeles and there on these massive billboards on the side of the road are my legs. <laughs> you can't see my face. It's just my, my legs and my bottom and my torso. Uh, but that was pretty kind of like, wow, uh, America is indeed a, a great place. That got me to Los Angeles. And uh, I was dating an English lady. And she said, they're looking for some extras for a movie called Hook. And I, I had no idea what Hook was. So I sent uh, a picture of me sitting on a beach, basically, with my long, quiffy hair and my kind of Oscar Wilde look. And I get a phone call from a casting office on a Friday, and I'm, I'm down near San Diego. And they said, could you come up and see us on Monday? Um, we think you might look like um, uh, Peter Pan's father. And I'm like, okay. That's a compliment. I and I said, who would I be meeting? They said, oh, you'd be meeting Steven Spielberg. I'm like, okay. Um, so I run out. I buy the book, Peter Pan. No mention of the father, but clearly there must be a yes, father in yes. uh, a process of having a child. Yeah. Um, so I, I come up to, to Hollywood and the first person I ever met was Warren Beatty. So Warren Beatty was shooting Bugsy at the time and he was just walking out of the, the studio or out of the, um, uh, the stage. And I said, oh, Mr. Beatty, how are you? I'm, I'm Nick Creed. I'm here to see Steven Spielberg. He goes, hey kid, he's inside on the left, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, wow. So I go in, the first AD takes me over, sits me down in a little chair in the corner of the room. And then Steven Spielberg comes over and says, Nick, so lovely to meet you. I said, so lovely to meet you. And he says, uh, tell me a, a bit about your acting background. I said, well, you know, I, I'm English, uh, theatre, bit of Shakespeare. He says, okay. And any truth in that at all? Had you done any Shakespeare? Well, I, I had studied it at school yeah. and I could knock out the odd monologue. Um, and I had been a stagehand in theatre, not an actor. But I was not going to turn down the opportunity to, to be in a Steven Spielberg movie. Um, so I did my best uh, impression of being a talented actor. And he said, great, great. He goes, well, look, go go, and the hair and makeup people want to see you. So they take me to the hair and makeup trailer. And as I walk in the door, the door swings open and there's Robin Williams. And Robin Williams turns around and goes, daddy. <laughs> and, uh, and on the mirror is my picture that they've obviously shown him to say, look, this is the actor that's going to come in to play your father. And... Um, Robin Williams is really just the most amazing man. I mean, he was always on. Um, it, it didn't matter whether you were kind of the person doing the coffee in the morning or the head of a studio. He was just an incredible man, just incredibly funny, big heart. Uh, and you can imagine my first day in Hollywood was, was quite um, extraordinary. I started at the top um, and, then, and then went downhill rapidly <laughs> when I decided to become an agent. So out of interest, how much did you get paid for three seconds in Hook? I can tell you that the baby that I was holding got paid more. <laughs> Is that right? 
It's a more demanding role, Nick. It's a more demanding role. I got paid um, better agent. I think had a better agent. <laughs> um, I got paid eighty dollars for eight hours, right. and I think the baby got a hundred dollars for four hours. <laughs> okay, fine. You could have gotten a better deal. I agree. Okay, so Nick, let's finish with your three bits of advice on how to make an idea interesting enough to share. Uh, number one, I would say is time. Be quick, be concise, be focused. I think that's probably the biggest mistake I see people make. Take, Don't be as short as you can. Two, give value. And the only way you can give value is to have a headline. A concise headline is going to explain to you why you're going to give me 30 seconds or 60 seconds, right? What's the value in it for me? So give me a great headline. Um, and then lastly, if you want people to connect to you, if you want them to share it, you have to have an emotional connection. So you need to find at least one emotional connection point. So awe, surprise, curiosity, empathy, happiness. If you can get one of those, great. You get two of those, fantastic. But look for an emotional connection because without an emotional connection, someone is not going to share it. Wonderful. Nick, thank you so much. There was lots in there. And a big, big thank you for all the preparation you put into it. It was just a great, great hour. Adam, thank you so much. Um, I just want to let uh, everyone know out there that I listen probably every quarterly to the audible book, Beautiful Constraint. The reason I love that book is it makes you uh, understand how people have solved problems. And it puts my brain in that, oh my God, that's really great lateral thinking. Um, so I use that to actually put myself in a meditative state to think out of the box. So anyone who hasn't uh, read that book or listens to the book, I, for me, as a, as a thought starter to get yourself in the mood for um, great ideas, I totally recommend that book. So Adam, it's, it's been a huge pleasure for me. Um, as you know, curiosity, um, you basically do hundreds of hours of work finding incredible stories that I don't have to do. And I get the benefit of you laying it out beautifully. So I thank you for that. You have a passion for your subject, which is why I think so many people are, are huge fans of yours. And one of my other big passions that I like to have in my life is change. And you know, your challenger ideas, everyone is trying to do things differently. And so that's also something I totally believe in. I think change is so important. The moment you're at the top of your game, you've got to think about how am I going to change it? Because there's going to come a moment where things are going to change, the algorithm is going to change, and you have to be ready. So. I want to say thank you. It's been a great honor and I'm a huge fan. That's enormously kind of you. Thank you very much. So that brings us to the end of this first season of Let's Make This More Interesting. Thank you for listening. And thank you to those of you that have shared links and feedback and ideas with me. I've enormously enjoyed and benefited from all of them. A number of you have also generously offered to collaborate with your data on further work in putting a cost on dull. And we will indeed be putting more work into that in the first half of 2024 and share that back at the beginning of the next season which I hope will start in the middle of next year. Although I am also going to try and share one New Year's episode, probably in early January, pulling together some of the key themes from this first season that have struck me, at least. A final very big thank you to Ruth, my editor, Ross, my producer, and to Helen for all her wonderful work behind the scenes. I hope if there's one thing that we've all learned from this, it's that dull is a choice. Dull is everywhere. Dull is multidimensional. Dull is surprisingly expensive. And dull is a choice. Nothing is intrinsically dull, but that we make it that way, or at least allow it to be that way. And that whoever we are, introverts or extroverts, if we arm ourselves with greater intentionality, preparation, and perhaps a few of these toolboxes we learned along the way, the toolboxes we think are right for us and our personal style, we can honor and respect our audiences a little more. Let's decide to stop going out dull because as one of our guests so memorably put it, where's the fun in just dialing it in? <laughs>